What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means completely eliminating carbon emissions from its electricity use, all day, every day. It's an ambitious goal, but Google is up for the challenge. Google has been on this energy journey for almost two decades, and now it's redrawing the roadmap to decarbonize electric grids and working with clean tech entrepreneurs and startups to get there. Achieving 24-7 carbon-free energy will require new technologies, new approaches to energy purchasing, and new policies. We'll tell you more later in the episode, so stay tuned. You can learn more by going to g.co forward slash carbon free by 2030. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Matt Rogers, the co-founder of Nest. Nest is best known for its elegant learning thermostat, the first major breakout hit in the smart home space. Google later acquired the company for $3.2 billion. Matt is a former Apple engineer who applied design principles from the iPod and the iPad to smart thermostats, jolting an industry badly in need of change. In this interview, Matt talked about his Apple influence, how he and his co-founder Tony Fidel initially became obsessed with the connected home, and how Nest fit into the Google structure. It is one of the funniest episodes we've ever recorded on What It Takes. This episode was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters in 2019. Our friend, venture investor, Shale Khan, sets the scene. Thank you. So Matt Rogers probably needs no introduction, but here I go anyway. Um, These days, I think that many of us anyway take it largely for granted that the idea that the smart home is real and that it's here to stay. Uh, More than 60 million of us now in the United States have smart speakers that we are speaking to in our houses checking the weather and ordering groceries and turning the lights on and off and whatever else we're doing in the privacy of our own homes with our Alexa devices. Um, I actually saw somebody the other day say that his three-year-old daughter recently asked her toaster to order her a toy from Amazon. (laughs) And personally, I can say this actually just happened to me as I was standing outside just before this. Um, My phone buzzed because my Ring video doorbell told me that someone was at my door. So this stuff is all happening all around us all the time, and we're becoming very familiar with it very quickly. But you don't have to think back that far to a point where this was not at all obvious. Um, In fact, I was looking at uh, Google search trend data a couple of days ago. The term smart home basically didn't show up in the search data at all until about 2013. And then since then, it's been on this like very consistent upward trajectory as the idea of the smart home and all the things that it comes with have gained an interest. And if you think through the story of how we ended up in this position where we are all starting to get smart homes all the time, perhaps the craziest part of it at least to me, is the killer product that broke open this market, which is the smart thermostat. Who would have thought that the thing that would break open the smart home was the smart thermostat? Before Nest and Matt Rogers and Tony Fidel and the team there helped make thermostats cool, 
they were just an ugly utilitarian device that we all forgot we had in our home. But because of a combination of new capabilities and great data analytics and beautiful design, the Nest thermostat was different basically as soon as it was introduced, which was in 2011. And I suspect most of you know sort of the broad strokes of the story as it progressed from there. The Nest thermostat was introduced. Uh, it blew up. It was almost immediately, at least from my perspective, uh, one of the hottest new consumer tech products in the market. It became very popular very quickly. Adoption was taking off. It didn't actually, they started launching other products. Um, they launched a smoke and carbon monoxide detector. They're taking other forgotten items in the home and making them both smart and sexy. And it actually was relatively quick from that to the point where Google saw the potential and bought the company for a whopping $3.2 billion in 2014. And then since then, after what feels on the outside like many additional lives that Nest has lived within Google most recently, uh, Google essentially rebranded its entire smart home effort as Google Nest, making the Nest brand sort of front and center in one of Google's biggest initiatives. So I think that story is reasonably well-known and appreciated. What I think is maybe less appreciated is how the impacts of what happened with Nest have reverberated in multiple different directions. For example, as a thought experiment, imagine that the, the Nest smart thermostat or the smart thermostat in general hadn't taken off. Do you think that we would still be in the midst of this smart home revolution that we see today? I would argue no. Or Separately, if Nest hadn't seen a $3.2 billion acquisition, where would the world of cleantech entrepreneurship be today? I would bet you that Nest's exit as a venture-backed startup has done more than any other to prop up the world of cleantech venture capital, especially during a time when it was sort of out of vogue, um, and perhaps inspired entrepreneurs to create new businesses in the sector. And that's to say nothing of the impact of demand flexibility, um, which is at this point widely viewed as one of the pillars of decarbonizing the grid. But for the most part, when we talk about demand flexibility today, what we really mean is smart thermostats. So Matt Rogers, along with his co-founder, Tony Fidel, and the team at Nest, I think should be recognized not just for having built a wildly successful company, but also for having helped to spawn multiple trends that are changing all of our lives every day. So given that, I can think of no better way to spend an hour than to hear Matt's story. And I, with no further ado, will hand it over to Emily Kirsch to interview Matt Rogers. Matt, welcome to the new powerhouse headquarters and welcome to What It Takes. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. Definitely. Um, this is not meant to be a trick question, but what time zone is your body in right now? I'm actually not sure. So I, I got off the plane from London three hours ago, but I woke up at four o'clock in the morning in Europe, so I'm not even really sure at this point. That's okay. We're happy you're here. It's a good time to do an interview. <laughs> Um, so, as Shale said, people know Nest. You co-founded Nest with Tony Fidel in 2010. Spoiler alert uh, for those who didn't follow your story. Uh, Nest sold to Google just four years later for $3.2 billion. Um, 
want to start with your family, though. So like me, your grandparents were immigrants from the Hungary, Russia, um, Austria region. Your grandfather grew up in New York selling newspapers, became a union plumber. Um, you grew up in Gainesville, Florida. Your dad was a local doctor. Your mom did interior design. What influence did your grandparents and parents have on your character? Yeah, I think the biggest, actually, I think about growing up in one, growing up in a small town in a small town that didn't have a lot of venture capitalists and technology companies and those kind of things. Uh, I was always uh, inspired and pushed to do more and to ask lots of questions, to be curious. And fortunately, we had a, a, a university nearby. I, you know, university of Florida is, is in Gainesville. And uh, they always pushed me to reach out to professors or be a lab rat for some grad students. And uh, also, so like one is continue to be curious, always be learning. But the other side is to be human. And uh, especially my grandfather having grown up in the depression and having literally nothing and like having to sell newspapers for two cents uh, to maybe buy, buy dinner for the family. Uh, and then being a plumber in New York City in the 50s and 60s and being able to send two kids to college. Uh, always was pushed to like, hey, like there's a lot of privilege in life and a lot of luck. And it's really important to recognize when you have luck and to help pay it forward to others and to, you know, to help others in their journey. And that's one of the things kind of post-Nest that has probably affected me the most is, uh, you know, it's no time to sit on your laurels and, and enjoy. Like there's so much suffering in the world and things to, to help out on. Absolutely. Um, as a kid, I know you were very high energy and as you said, very curious. So nothing has changed in 30 plus years. Uh, and as a three-year-old, you had a, a Mac plus. And then at 13, you loved the company Apple so much that your grandparents took you on a trip from Gainesville, Florida to Apple HQ in Cupertino in California. <laughs> it's, it's a true story. True story. So, um, uh, what, what, why did you love Apple so much? And, and what did you say to your grandparents when you were there at Apple? Oh my gosh, it's so funny. Like Mac Plus. So like, like those who know like Apple history. So like, a Apple did the original Mac, uh, 1984. You know, iconic launch. Uh, this is kind of the the kind of generation and a half afterwards. And my dad bought it to kind of start his medical practice and to run the software that he eventually wrote for his medical practice. Uh, but I, I I fell in love with this company and this this product and uh, yeah to be like. If you watch kids today with an iPhone or you know a smartphone, you see how intuitive it is for them to use a screen, and that's what it became with me for a computer. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess like, being a three-year-old with a mouse and keyboard, uh, I, I learned a lot, and uh, I totally fell in love with Apple as a company and the products, and really appreciated how far they went to build great stuff, and. Uh, especially kind of, let's call it like the late 80s and early 90s, the computing industry was mostly garbage, right? It was mostly beige plastic, although let's, Apple used some beige plastic then too. Mm -hmm. uh, it was mostly garbage. And Apple made great stuff and really pushed the envelope of making technology this accessible. And when I was 13, my bar mitzvah present was my grandparents took me out to California uh, for a road trip. And when we drove to the Bay Area, I was very clear with them, like, we must stop by Infinite Loop and take a picture in front of the sign. And actually, I, I wanted to go on a tour, but if you guys know anything about Apple, they're not very open to the public. <laughs> so, like, uh, uh, we, we got to the lobby, and that, that was cool. Uh, uh, but that's, that's as far as we got. But uh, I had a very kind of 
Well, it's one of those, like when you're a kid, you can talk to your parents and grandparents and family members about like what you want to be when you grow up. I was like, I'm going to work at Apple. They're like, oh, that's a great kid. Yeah, like sure you are. Uh, but I, I was always very determined to do that. Mm. And, you know, it's funny how like life takes you on crazy journeys. And uh, I got very lucky to kind of land exactly where I wanted to be. Um, so to that determination point, uh, after high school, you went to Carnegie Mellon to study both electrical and computer engineering. I want to note that you got both a bachelor's and a master's in four years. And then as a junior, uh, before you graduated, you had the opportunity to intern at your dream company. You interned at Apple working on uh, one of the first iPods. And um, my understanding is you, as the intern, were responsible for developing the software for the iPod, is that right? Uh, it's actually this kind of crazy story. So, uh, so summer two thousand four. Uh, so, like to put this in context, uh, Apple had not yet launched the iPod Mini. It was just kind of, that was the product that was going to come out uh, just after the summer in, in September that year, uh, which was really like the product that like took it up the next level of the curve in terms of millions of units, and then eventually tens of millions of units. Uh, the team was quite small. Like they kind of all fit on one, one and a half floors of a pretty small office building. How many people? Maybe 25 or 30 people. It's a pretty small team. Like everybody knew each other. Like, you know, everyone had worked together in some capacities before. Uh, and they were all super, super heads down and focused on getting this product shipped. Uh, to the point where like, you know, the intern shows up. Well, let's give the intern the job that we all think should get done, but no one's doing. So... Uh, Which was building the software for the product. Well, no, no, no. Uh, building the software for manufacturing the product. Okay. So uh, they gave me the intern the job of rewriting all of the software that was used in the manufacturing process to ensure quality control and to make sure the product at the end of the day worked. Uh, the intern, like to make sure the product worked. Uh, uh, so so like, I, I think they originally thought it as like an experiment and like they weren't actually going to use anything I built, but like... Like two-ish months in, they realized that actually this was a, probably the path to go. And uh, at the time, like t you know, t Tony Fidel and, and Brian Sander, who was running the hardware team at the time, were like, "All right, well, let's just let's do this." And uh, Apple had some weird policy at the time of not sending the interns to China. Uh, I guess that makes sense. So uh, I, I worked from Cupertino on Chinese time uh, to make sure that things were getting up to speed as things were getting installed on the line for that 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 false launch. Uh, yeah, it was a crazy internship. And you were, you were offered not just the internship, but while you were interning, you were offered your dream job at Apple as a junior, but you decided to finish school. You didn't drop out. Um, you graduated. And I, did, I did graduate. I, I think my mom would have killed me if I, if I, <laughs> if I didn't finish school. And then, and then you started at Apple. Um, the team though, that had been a 25 person team was now a hundred person team. Yeah, it was, I, back into. I, I got back. It was a little like, you know, was it nine months later. And we're like, who are all these people and where do they come from? Talking about like explosive growth of, of, you know, of a team. And uh, it, it was pretty incredible to, to actually watch. Like iPod was kind of like a startup within Apple, not just from like a, a product perspective, but culturally too. It was very isolated and kind of separate from the company, even physically separate from the company. And to watch that explosive growth was, it was amazing. And mm -hmm. like, uh, so I got back from, from college. I was like, all right, I'm ready to do it. Uh, so they, they, they put me on like fixing bugs. That's so kind of like what you do with the kind of the new college grads. Uh, so I, I kind of uh, pinched hit for uh, the summer to make sure the iPod Nano got shipped. And fortunately it did. A uh, lot of bugs though. A lot of bugs. <laughs> and so then in, um, uh, af after it had shipped, then 
of those 100 people that were now on the team, 98 of them went to work on the next version of the next iPod. And they said, you lowly new employee, we're going to give you something that nobody else really wants for some reason, which is to work on the first iPhone. Yeah, but it wasn't called that. So like, uh, uh, when you sell it that way, it sounds really good. (laughs) uh, So if you think about like being at a place at a certain time, so like, like the fall of 2005 at Apple, uh, the iPod is 70% of company revenue. It is the hot product. It is like the biggest consumer electronics product in history, like after the Walkman. Uh, so like everybody wants to work on the new iPod, right? Like it's, it's great for your career. Like it's the, it's the, it's the product at Apple. It's the one that, you know, Steve is going to pay all of his attention to those kind of things. And, uh, my, my boss is like, well, let's like throw the new guy on the skunk works thing that may or may not ever ship. Uh, and that at the time was the prototype for what would eventually become the iPhone. But uh, at the time was, you know, really just like five or six guys in kind of a walled off section of the building, you know, working away. And that was in 2005. You shipped it in 2007. It ended up being the biggest product launch of all time. Yeah. Uh, didn't see that coming either. I, I, <laughs> I, I, and I, I, have, I have to be honest with, with you guys. Like I, none of us at Apple at the time realized how big it was that we were building. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're like, oh, maybe we'll sell 100,000 of these. That's kind of like the, the level <laughs> that we were expecting. Like maybe if we were gonna get, you know, we really hit out of the park, maybe we'll sell like half a million of these. Uh, it's a really complex product, right? It's pretty expensive. Uh, but actually like to, to Steve Jobs' credit, like there were very few people in the company who actually understood the whole picture. Like we all actually were working on pieces. So like my team was building the hardware, you know, doing the manufacturing, building the firmware, the low-level software for the product. And there was a different team in a different building with different badges to get in that was working on the applications and the UI. And those teams didn't actually work too closely together. So like there was only like probably half a dozen, maybe a dozen people in the whole company who actually saw things coming together. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was an incredible two years. If you think about watching something go from zero to not just launched, but like enormous launch in terms of team we went from, you know, let's call it like half dozen or dozen people to about a thousand people when we launched, maybe more than a thousand. Uh, you can't actually hire that many people. It's not possible. So we ended up stealing people <laughs> throughout the company, like people working on Macs. We're not working on Macs anymore, guys. Come on over the iPhone team. Uh, and we didn't call it the iPhone team at the time. We didn't launch yet. I think it was called Purple at the time. Uh, no, like random color, right? We could have called it Avocado too. That would have been great. Uh <laughs> But yeah, like, like you think about onboarding a thousand people, uh, it's a lot of opportunity for leadership. Uh, and for me, being so early in my career, it was kind of like, again, luck strikes again, uh, right place, right time. And having been early on the team, I had some knowledge of how things worked and what, you know, how this, this part of the product worked and, you know, who to talk to for this and uh, kind of f- felt naturally into a leadership role of, helping people get started working on iPhones. And uh, things grew from there. If you had to synthesize one learning about leadership from that time, what would it be? Ooh. Uh, yeah, ask the hard questions. Oh, we're just getting started. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think at least, like, my learning from that point in time was to meet people where they are. And you know, people come to the table with, wherever their experiences, their background, their education, what they've worked on before, 
their culture. And it's really important to meet them where they are when it comes to, to, to leading them on either a new project or a new initiative. And uh, I didn't necessarily get that at the time, but I obviously get it now. What It Takes is supported by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. In 2007, Google was the first major company to be carbon neutral. Ten years later, it became the first company of its size to match 100% of yearly electricity use with renewables. Every step towards decarbonization is a step in the right direction. But to stop the worst impacts of climate change, we'll need to do more than offset and reduce emissions. We need to eliminate them. That's why Google plans to be the first company to source carbon-free energy around the clock everywhere it operates by 2030. In the process, they'll need to piece together the solutions you hear about on this podcast. Machine learning, batteries, cheap, clean energy, and human ingenuity on a global scale. The next decade holds a lot of opportunities for new technologies, new approaches to energy purchasing, and new policies. Google is partnering with all kinds of energy innovators to make the future carbon-free. If you want to get inspired by the challenge, or if your business can help Google get to 24-7 carbon-free by 2030, visit g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. Tony Fidel, who is credited with designing the iPod, was your first boss and mentor at Apple for six years. Um, in 2009, because Tony wanted to lead all of the development for the iPhone, but Steve Jobs uh, disagreed and gave him an ultimatum, and they ultimately parted ways. Um, and so in 2010, after he had left, you were 26 years old, you had worked on iPhones for a few years, you were making half a million dollars a year at Apple. It's entirely like fortune, privilege, and being in the right place at the right time. Like, like especially thinking about like my, my, my mental state at the time, you know, as a young guy making really good money, like to then quit and walk away from that. It, you know, it's kind of crazy, right? Uh, but actually, that's part of the privilege that I, I now realize I had that, like, because I had a little bit of savings, I, 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 could, I could burn down for two years. Uh, and that allowed me the flexibility to go start a company if I wanted to do it. For sure. And you went to Tony and said, hey, I'm thinking about about quitting, uh, walking away from my dream job, from all this money, to work on smart homes. And Tony said... Oh, uh, this is a terrible idea. Some of you guys actually I, in the audience know Tony, and uh, often some strong words mixed in with is a really bad idea. Uh, 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 for the record, you can swear on the podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, so Tony and I met for lunch at Madeira. Oh my God, this is such a cliche. Like I've, I'm, I, I, it's Silicon Valley TV show? You guys have probably seen it. So like Tony and I had lunch at Madeira on Sand Hill Road at, at, at the Rosewood, uh, <laughs> October 2009. Uh, God, it's such a cliche now in history. But, was, was he in a... The, the TV show didn't exist back then. Was he, in so. a McLaren, was he in a McLaren? Was he in a McLaren? He was not in a McLaren. Okay, just checking. Uh, it may have been worse though. It may have been like an Aston Martin. Uh, like, uh, 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 I actually don't know what car he was driving at the time. Uh, so he, he had spent like the last year in France with his family kind of taking a break from nine stressful years at Apple uh, and was building a house in Tahoe. Uh, I had just bought a house in Los Gatos, pretty close to Apple, that was built like kind of 1970s-ish. And as you can imagine, like had, we, had, we both actually had houses on the brain. And I was like, Tony, I, I've been doing my research. There's a lot of forums on the internet. Like people are doing this like connected home thing. Uh, and at the time, I, you know, actually the connected home was not really a thing. It was a bunch of hackers kind of stringing things together. Uh, there were no products to speak of, really. There were, 
it was really kind of tinkerers. I think it was kind of like the computing industry pre-Apple one, right? Uh, and I was like, this is a huge opportunity. We could go and make great products like we did at Apple, like use the same kind of hardware, same type of software, cloud services, tie it all together, and we could make, we, uh, make this great smart home. He's like, it's a terrible idea. That's not, that's not a business. That's not a product. No one wants to buy a smart home. People want to buy great stuff. That was kind of the, the, the kind of key insight from that lunch. He's like, but that's worth doing. And he's like, I've been doing this house in Tahoe and buying all the best stuff that's out there. And there's a lot of problems and there's a lot of opportunity to build great products. So uh, we kind of left that lunch. We're like, hey, like, let's spend some time on this. And him and I spent probably the next six months either meeting in person, doing Skypes, like working, drilling down through all the problems in the home that we could solve with technology. This is while you were still full-time at Apple? I was still full-time at Apple. So it was very good, like a very good hygiene. I had different laptops, different cell phones. This like, is important. I, I, didn't, I did not, you know, Apple, Apple did not own any of the property I was building. Uh, and it, the, yeah, the key was, is I guess you, much like when you build a new product, you want to do market research. We were effectively, we didn't actually realize we were doing it at the time, but effectively doing like early market research and user testing uh, of like what products are worth doing and how could we solve those problems. Uh, it's really important, I think, to start with a problem statement. Like, is, sometimes technology is in search of a solution. You guys probably hear that cliche a lot. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we were solving a real core problem that affected people and that could make a difference in people's lives. And uh, through all of our kind of drill downs, we, like, we looked at irrigation as an example. Like, is there an opportunity to save people water? And turns out it's really hard to do. And uh, only about 20% of homes have irrigation. So let's not do that product. That's not a good place to start. Then we looked at en like the energy side and we're like, okay, like maybe we do some hot water heaters. That, that, could, that could be interesting. Nope, turns out hot water heating, uh, only about 20, 30% of, of energy and really, really hard to save. Turns out hot water heaters, pretty efficient. Uh, like big thermal batteries effectively. Oh, heating and cooling, half of home energy. Wow, beige plastic boxes, no technology, Terrible user interfaces seems like an area where we could we could really attack this problem. And it seems obvious now in hindsight, but at the time, like this was kind of like one of those critical moments where like, oh, I think we found something really cool. And we spent the next few months talking to people who had made thermostats before. Uh, we called some folks at UC Davis who had done some research in the HVAC industry. We actually called folks at the EPA who are managing the Energy Star program for thermostats and learned actually that they were going to sunset the program for, for Energy Star for thermostats. So like, oh, this is like right place at right time again. Uh, and then spring of 2010, so six months after that first conversation, we're like, this is worth doing full time. Let's do it. And uh, I resigned from Apple. Uh, Tony moved back from France. We rented a garage in Palo Alto. And it's not, again, like, not like the TV show. Again, like, uh, oh, man. Uh, the TV show is so real. Uh, it, was, it was the cheapest real estate we could get. And it was like 2,500 bucks a month for like 2,000 square feet, which is like impossible now, right? Uh, so this was great. Like, like we, got a, we, got, we got room to run. Uh, and we put a little bit of money in ourselves. And we started hiring our buddies. And we're like, let's go hire the best people we possibly could find to go build this thermostat. And that's what we did. How much of this decision to leave was motivated by climate change? A lot, actually. I mean, 
going back to kind of my last year at Apple, I was getting more and more frustrated with the lack of mission and uh, kind of building the biggest consumer electronics product in history. Like you have, you actually have a responsibility too. And we were seeing in an executive review for it was what would become iPhone four. And I think it was Bob Mansfield who was running the team at the time uh, was asking us questions around graphics performance. I, you know, how many frames per second for either Fruit Ninja or Angry Birds? One of those two. <laughs> uh, and it just, something didn't click in my brain. It was like, we have assembled around us hmm. this remarkable team of incredibly talented people putting their all in. For Fruit Ninja? That's probably a problem. That's, that seems like the wrong thing for us to be doing. And that was one of the things that caused me to start looking at what are other opportunities to go to go to go attack and uh i'd always been motivated by climate change it's one of the largest challenges of our generation the next generation and probably every generation thereafter that we could count and uh if we could use from my perspective the skills that we have to really impact that like why shouldn't we go do that that seems like the right thing to do yeah and uh, I know you, as you said, you and Tony put in about a quarter million dollars of your own money. That gave you about six months runway to do the early prototyping. And the goal of the first prototype that I heard, and tell me if this is right, the goal of that prototype was don't freeze grandma this winter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, part of entering this new industry for us, we had, we had to learn a lot. And what we quickly learned is like, like if your iPod crashes and reboots, like you're like, oh man, like. I got to start my song over again. Uh, if your thermostat crashes and freezes and the heating doesn't work, uh, grandma's going to be real pissed. Not, not, not a good thing. So, uh, yeah, we, we were very insistent on doing extensive testing and field testing before we launched. And we had about 500 homes around the country using prototypes before we actually even introduced the product. Mm. That, that first winter was tough. Uh, the summer was actually even harder. Uh, the summer before we launched... Uh, it was really, really hot in Florida, and uh, all of my family is from Florida. And uh, imagine it's like 95 degrees and 100% humidity, and your air conditioning is not working. Uh, so, needless to say, like, I got a lot of phone calls from my mom, which then caused a lot of bugs fixes to happen. So, it's really good motivation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really good motivation. Good user testing. Um, unlike a lot of startups in clean technology that are uh, selling to other businesses, you were selling directly to consumers. And um, how did you get those first customers? You said, so beyond beyond kind of your mom and, and the immediate family, um, how did you get those first customers? And what did you do um, around press and PR? How did you leverage that to get those consumers as opposed to utilities or other big energy companies? Yeah, one of the things that we pulled out of the Apple playbook effectively verbatim is the power of a story, the, po the power of a narrative, and the power of a surprise launch. Uh, and we had, we had done our damnedest to keep Nest a secret until we were ready. And one, because we weren't ready and we didn't want to kind of blow the lid off what we were doing, but also we didn't want to kind of build expectation before, before things were ready. And Actually, like in today's world, you know, people pre-announce things, and like, you know, Samsung Galaxy Fold, and where is it now? And like, we 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 kind of we had learned that lesson of like, don't launch it until you're ready, uh, and then when you're ready, go big. So we had we had built the narrative of the why, like what's the problem that we're solving, and how do we solve it, and why are we solving it? 
and uh, the story of the team. And we, <laughs> this is a funny one. So we had hired a really, really great uh, PR person uh, from Logitech, Kate Brinks, an incredible, incredible PR leader. And she would outreach to journalists and not tell them what we're doing because if she told them, they probably wouldn't take the meeting. Uh, and we would surprise them in the meeting with what we were doing. And we would take them through the narrative and the story. And we would, by the end of the meeting, like whether it's like a 30 minute or, you know, one hour briefing, they were sold. They're like, I, I get it. I understand why this is important. And uh, some of them were like shocked that all these former Apple guys were building thermostats. Like that also was probably part of the story. Uh, and uh, we orchestrated a really well-coordinated launch where the product went up for sale at the same time as that press came. And that got us our first 5,000 customers, which is a really good place to start. It's a great place. Um, so a little later on, Kleiner Perkins and Shasta Ventures led your first round of Series A, an $8 million Series A. Google Ventures then led the Series B. It was $50 million along with Lightspeed Ventures and Generation Al Gore's fund. Fun fact, you campaigned for Al Gore before you could even vote in high school. So that karma came back. Yeah, actually, my, my wife and I uh, uh, held signs and did kind of door-to-door for Al Gore uh, in 2000. Uh, we, but neither of us could vote. And we were not married then, obviously. Uh, 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 we, we didn't get married till, till like five, six years ago. But uh, 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 again, like climate change has always been kind of part of part of who I am and kind of what gets me out of bed in the morning. And uh, it's just funny how things come full circle in your life. Like the woman I was campaigning with ended up being my wife and the guy I was campaigning for ended up being my investor. It's like my, my world is way too small. <laughs> it's really strange. Again, like luck and privilege. Like I can't. Can't believe it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, after three years, you had 200 employees. You were shipping 40 to 50 thousand units per month. Uh, you had just raised your raised your latest round at an 800 million dollar valuation. What was it like being a founder at that time and having that kind of success? And what type of responsibility did you feel for the people on your team and the company? So we didn't think too much about success or not because we were always looking at the kind of the next milestone. Uh, this is also part of my, you know, coming from the Tony Fidel School of Management at Apple. Uh, you celebrate success very briefly, and then like we're moving on to what's next. Uh, so we were always kind of looking ahead uh, and thinking about, you know, how can we get this company to the next level? What's our next product? How do we enter our next market? But like we we had hired, you know, almost actually almost three hundred people at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, sold them pretty hard on why it was the right opportunity and. Uh, a lot of them moved from across the country, quit their dream jobs, you know, uprooted their families, took a lot of risk. And for a founder, that's think about the responsibility. And uh, I think about like, a guy like Hiro Honjo, who who moved, you know, him and his wife from Arizona and quit a great job there and didn't have a lot of savings. And uh, making sure that you know I was doing the right thing for him and his family too. So like as a founder, like it's not just about what's great for your investors, but you think about your employees and the risk that they took joining. And uh, I, 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 I always think about that. I'm, I'm glad we made decisions the way we did, you know, thinking about that too. Mm. Was it a lonely experience? <sighs> yes and no. So fortunately I had, I had a co-founder and someone who I could, you know, really go head to head with. Uh, we would talk every morning. Uh, we actually still almost talk every morning. Oh. Uh, it's like 8.30 a.m. every day. We were driving to work and we talk on the phone in our drive about like, you know, what are the key things we should be looking at? What are the things we should think about? Literally every day. Uh, so 
like lonely in that like it's a from a leadership perspective you can't like vent to your team this is not something you could do but it's good to have a partner that you could bounce things off of mm-hmm. uh but yeah I actually Tony I still keep in touch when we talk almost every day like he's again different time zone he, he's in he's in Asia now but uh he texts me before he goes to bed and I text him back in the morning and it's like delayed conversation. It's kind of like telegram, uh, <laughs> like t- talking in like the 1930s. It's really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did you do really well and what did you do poorly? Oh man. Uh, that's a really good one. Uh, what did I do really well? So I, I think like extremely good at hiring and getting people motivated around a problem. Uh, I think that, you know, I think about like what made us successful like, yes, like the mission is absolutely core, but getting our employees aligned around the mission was probably even more important. Uh, especially as we scaled, uh, it became impossible to make every decision ourselves. Like we had come from this Apple school of management where like Steve Jobs made every, every decision on design mm-hmm. in the product. Uh, as we scaled the company, like because we had such a strong mission alignment, uh, the team was able to scale with us. I think that was a really, really th- thing we got right. I think... Thing we didn't get right, I think, I, I wish we had spent more time on was I, spending more time in each product vertical before we did the next one. Uh, we were very, very quick to start start the next product line before our previous product line matured, and for the first two, it, it was kind of okay. But like when we got to the third, the fourth, and eventually the fifth product line, uh, it became that's you know stretches the team very thin. And this was going from thermostats to smoke detectors to security cameras. Exactly. Security systems, uh, other countries, because we actually had different products in different countries. Uh, It became very complex for a pretty small team. Mm. And question on that, I know the original vision that you had and the reason you started Nest in part was so that eventually you could do this whole, not just smart home, but a smart grid application. But then you kind of, you ended up doing the smoke detectors and the security cameras. So why the deviation from that original vision? It was also, more, this question is from David Crane, by the way. It's actually, it's actually more <laughs> additive. Uh, and actually, David was a really good customer for us. Uh, and, uh, 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 for us, it was additive. So we launched a really successful thermostat product, and we're scaling that product. At the same time, we're launching our utility software services, like our demand response service. We launched an energy efficiency service. Eventually, like launched a time of use service. Uh, so we were doing that, and we're doing all these other things in parallel. Uh, and I think you know, in, in hindsight, we felt it was very important because this was such a new industry that we actually needed like almost like a land grab, like, like each of these key products, if we didn't do them, someone else will. And uh, from like a competitive standpoint, we wanted to make sure we had kind of key positions staked out in each of these key verticals. That's eventually why we bought Dropcam too. Uh, we saw this camera market growing and we wanted to be in that market too. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And we haven't talked about this yet, but what was unique about the Nest thermostat? I mean, it's actually really simple. Like, it's an easy to use product. That's really it. I mean, like it's, a, it's beautiful. So you don't feel guilty about putting it on your wall. It saves you energy, saves money. Like it's just, it's simple. Like it doesn't need to be super complex. And yes, we packed it with lots of technology and sensors and machine learning, but that's not why people buy it. And that's not how we sold it either. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Uh, were there moments that you thought that Nest would fail? Many. Many, many moments. Oh, man. Okay. So, uh, I, I probably dozens of moments. And like, it's, it's funny how like, it could be perceived as an overnight success. But like, internally, like, there was moments of failure like, on a weekly basis. So, so, when we were going to launch our second product, uh, like thermostat version two. So, it was one year after we launched our first product. 
uh, because there's a lot of things in the first product that we didn't like that we wanted to kind of get right the second time. Uh, two weeks before we launched, like two or three of our vendors in Asia decided to back out. Uh, you know, this business is big enough for us. Like, who's this Nest company? Uh, we're not building for you guys. And if you think about like having spent uh, 14 months of R&D, probably $200 million, like, uh, and your suppliers are like, we're not doing this anymore, like two weeks before launch. Like that's, that's one of those game over moments. Uh, fortunately, we had an incredible like program management operations team and uh, Team Hanjo called in some relationships from people they'd worked with in the past and were able to get someone else to pick up the pieces. And we got really lucky and had a really successful launch. It, it was very rocky internally, but externally looked great. <laughs> Power PR. Uh, we also, I think, like talking about company ending moments, uh, we launched a smoke alarm that we kind of pushed the limits of what we should have put in the product. We, for a 1.0 product, we maybe added too much. Uh, we added a feature that you could wave at the smoke alarm and silence it if it was going off. You know, false alarms happen. You cook in the bacon, the alarm goes off, you wave at it. Great, that's super convenient, right? Turns out, if a fire is happening and you're running around the house, that could look a lot like waving. Uh, uh, not the best thing to have done. So like we had to do a product recall and having been through those at Apple, like those are, those are really scary moments. And they were scary at Apple with Apple resources and the Apple support network as a startup, super, super hard. And despite having a good amount of capital, you were pretty lean. Like there were no lunches, shuttles, uh, Nap pods. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, also, I guess, coming from the Apple School of, of, of Management, uh, you know, Steve and Tony had gone through the massive layoffs, you know, kind of in the 90s. And having gone through that experience, you know, Tony was very clear. Like, I had never experienced that. I, you know, I, I was still in school. Uh, he never wanted to go through that. So, like, we didn't overhire. Like, we, we hired beneath our burn rate. We didn't have the futons and the nap pods and we didn't have free lunches, although we did have tacos on Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> it cost us $250 to feed the entire company. Really, really, really frugal. Uh, uh, you know, we, we, we didn't kind of focus on the frills. We focused on the mission and people were excited to join us because of that mission, not because we had free lunch. Mm -hmm. In 2012 and 2013, Nest was sued for patent infringement on both the thermostat and the smoke detectors by a number of companies, including Honeywell. Do you remember where where you were when you heard about the lawsuit? Yeah, I was driving to work. Uh, uh, I was driving to work, uh, and I got a text from Chip Lutton. So Chip uh, was one of our advisors at the time. Uh, he was Apple's head patent attorney. Uh, so like, he was kind of the guy at Apple responsible for Apple's IP. And uh, he was an advisor to Tony and I in helping us kind of craft our IP portfolio. And we got a text saying, uh, you guys see the news? Uh, you're getting sued. Uh, uh, and one, it's like, it's one of the, it is like a David and Goliath moment. And it's either A, like you could be really scared and turtle up and just like hope it goes away. Or you kind of like make yourself look bigger than you are, uh, like Peacock style. Uh, we decided to do that, and we actually hired Chip full time to lead our to lead our our legal team, and uh, we went actually back after them. And what happened? Uh, we won. 
So we, we, uh, it was great. Like over, over a very long period of time, we actually invalidated their patents because they, they were not innovative. They were copying something else. And uh, they were trying to sue us for using complete sentences in our product. You, can, you cannot patent complete sentences, it turns out. That's, that's, not, that's not novel. That's obvious. Uh, and you know, we, we, we got it thrown out eventually. And, uh, but it was one of those things that some investors would be scared by that. But we had done a really good job of keeping our investors in the loop on all things at all times. And they were with us every step of the way. Like, if you guys want to fight this, we're, we're behind you and we back you. Was that the hardest moment? Or if not, what was the single hardest moment? It definitely wasn't the hardest moment. It was scary. But at the same time, uh, we realized we could use this really scary moment also as a positive, uh, talking about the power of a narrative, like having the largest incumbent conglomerates in this, in this space sue you as a startup with zero revenue and, you know, 80 employees is an honor. We're like, <laughs> I, I, like man, like, we, we must be onto something, right? Like, if they're, if they're scared by us, then, like, this is probably something we should keep doing. Uh, so, you know, I, I actually, it was kind of the opposite. Like, we're, we were kind of invigorated. <laughs> um, so fast forward, you got through some of these growing pains. And as we said earlier, in January of 2014, uh, when you were raising at a $2 billion valuation and had about 300 people on the team, Google bought you for $3.2 billion. So two questions. One, how did the acquisition come about? And two, how do you feel about the valuation, especially that extra, that billion bonus bump? <laughs> Uh, had it come about. So we were raising our series D and is one of those fork in the road conversations, right? Like either a, like this is going to be a really big company. We're going to need to raise a lot of money. Like as hardware businesses scale, like you got to keep throwing money in it. It's not like it's, it's a, it like becomes immediately profitable. So we knew we, we'd have to raise a lot of money. And as we were having series D conversations, we got a call from Larry Page at Google to come in and have a conversation just before Thanksgiving. So it was like, it was like third week of November and we went up. To Wait, s- pause. So Larry, Larry himself calls you. Uh, email, was that email? email. Okay. Email. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, was that, was that weird? Like, no, 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 definitely exciting. Uh, it, it was, it was kind of interesting. Like that was my first time on Google's campus and I'm like, we're all these cool people on bikes and like pods, everything's and a rainbow and like, what is going on here? Uh, there's like unicorns jumping in the grass. Like, I'm like, what is this place? Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, we took the elevator up to, to Larry's office at the top floor and he sat down in kind of the boardroom, like just the three of us. Uh, and he explained to us why he thought we were doing something interesting and like how he thought the smart home was like the next evolution of computing and why it made sense for Google to be there too. It's a good sell. Yeah. And, and like, and kind of the logistics of an acquisition are interesting. Like usually some sort of corporate development guy comes to your office with a piece of paper. It's called a term sheet. looks a lot like an investment round, except once you look at this paper, it's really hard to unlook at it. So like the advice I give to, to founders these days is like, if you don't want to sell your company, don't even get the paper because once you get the paper, it's really hard not to sign it. Uh, is there any part of you that wishes you didn't? No, actually. Uh, like, again, like, I know how hard it is to build these businesses. And I think about like, our cohort of the time, like other companies building consumer hardware, like uh, GoPro uh, or Fitbit. And like, GoPro is trading at like 1x revenue on like a billion dollars. So like a billion dollars of revenue trading at like 1x. That's a tough place to be. 
So like we were trading like a 10 X that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's a good place to be. Uh, and Google is a really good home for the company in that uh, Google, Google's vision of the home extended way beyond what we wanted to do. Uh, like developer ecosystem, uh, uh, platform play, like all these other things that are interesting when you're with a Google mindset. So it's a really good home for Nest. I'm, I'm really excited for the team that's still there. Mm-hmm. After the acquisition, uh, Nest bought Dropcam for $550 million. And there was some controversy around culture clashes between Nest and Google and Dropcam. And ultimately, that led Tony to leave Nest in 2016. You stayed on for another two years in time to see Nest folded back into Google's hardware division. Uh, what did you think about Tony leaving? And were you thinking about leaving too at that time in 2016? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a really good lesson in how you could be vision aligned, but not be culturally aligned. And uh, like we, as you said, culture clashes on so many different levels. So like Dropcam came with their way of doing things. We had come with this very kind of Apple mindset of building products. Google had their way of doing things, and uh, it was a little bit of oil and water. And it took a while for the kind of the mixture to, to settle out. Uh, like having Tony leave was both sad, but also I think was a really good thing for the company uh, because it allowed the company to eventually become integrated with Google. Like, and, you know, Tony is very kind of tops down kind of leader and that's not how Google works. Google is like, it's a little bit like terrorist cells. Like, they're like a loosely connected federation of teams, but like literally each cell is doing their own thing. They may even be doing the same thing. Like I, they may not even be talking, but I, 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 it works for them. Like they have, a, they, they launch all this innovation because they allow kind of things to grow from the grassroots. Uh, it's not how we ran the company. It's not how, how Steve ran Apple, but it works for them. And uh, having Tony leave allowed me to eventually and the company off to Google. What was it like being at Google post-acquisition? Like what were the best parts and what were the worst parts? Best part is probably the access to talent uh, and the access to technology. So for example, like we, we were looking at some new ways of sensing motion like using things like radar. And what do you know? There's a team somewhere at Google, like in some lab somewhere that developed like radar that fits on a microchip. Holy cow, like, and we can go talk to those guys, and they're thrilled that we were reaching out. Like, they, no one actually reached out to them before. So, like, it was, it was, it was great. Uh, uh, so, that, that was awesome. It was kind of like being a kid in the candy store or like technology candy store. Uh, like, anything you want, someone's probably working on somewhere. Uh, yeah, like, there are people working on like geothermal heat pumps and like, like you name it, someone's working on it at Google. Uh, even today, like, name it, nuclear fusion, there's probably someone working on it. Uh, I think the hard part is that. Uh, you, there, there's no like mandate from the top of what's a, a priority for the company. So let's say like this year, it's really important that we launch a security suite of products. Uh, we could say that that's our most important thing, but it, there's there's no cultural mechanism for making sure that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you kept your day job at Nest for the first year that you launched um, a new initiative called Insight, which we'll talk about. Um, how did you know that it was time to leave Nest slash leave Google? And what was it like to leave? Hmm. So combination of things. Like one, uh, the team had gotten to the point where they didn't need me as much anymore. And 
I, that's it's kind of like being a parent and sending your kids off to college. Like it's both a sad moment, but you're like, oh, like they're 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 kind of going out on their own in the world. Uh, and we had built an incredible team that could really run the show without us, and that made things a little easier. At the same time, I'm actually recognizing my own my own failures and like my own uh, inadequacies. Like I am probably not the leader that Google is going to want to run this business within Google. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit against the grain, as you guys might see, uh, a little bit contrarian sometimes, and that may not be the right thing for fitting within Google structure. So it's kind of realizing that I may not be the right guy for this. The team's probably ready. This might be the good opportunity for me to, to, to hand off and, and head out. Yeah. Although you're no longer at the company, where do you see Nest in five years? Oh, so uh, Google Nest, uh, as it's now called, <laughs> uh, I think will be one of the two dominant platforms in the home. Uh, they'll probably be two. Amazon will probably be the other one. Uh, they're going to have a lot of first-party products. But actually, I think more importantly, they're going to have a lot of third-party products. And this is one where, especially when you put a Google hat on, uh, enabling a vast, vast ecosystem of other companies. Like, think about what Android did to the smartphone space. Like, incredible strategy, right? And Apple has, like, one iPhone. Or I guess, like, they have, like, two or three iPhones now. Uh, but like how many Android phones are out in the world and how many companies spawned and how many businesses were created on the back of Android. Hmm. Last question before um, we move into what you're doing now with Insight. What lesson took you the longest to learn? Hmm. It's probably about trust. And like if you hire great people, uh, you know, you have to you know, trust that they actually know what you're, you're do- what they're doing and like not to second guess them. I, I often had a tendency as a leader at Nest to like, oh, like, can you take another month off that schedule? Or like, can you take $5 off that bomb? And I would keep asking those questions. And like, in hindsight, yes, I was pushing them to kind of maybe do their best, but they were doing their best already. And me, I was pushing them a little too hard. Mm-hmm. It took me a really long time. I said, maybe I still haven't learned it actually. <laughs> I appreciate and admire your self-awareness. Um, so, to the present day, you and your wife, Swati, who you met when you were 12 years old. That's right, 12, yeah. Um, and campaigned we, for... Again, we didn't get married at 12. That, right. That'd be awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you campaigned for Al Gore together. You have been described as a Silicon Valley power couple. Swati was with Square for four years before joining the investment team at Kleiner Perkins as a partner. Um, you had your first date when you were trying to launch Nest. Any dating advice you want to share with the audience based on that experience? Oh, man. Uh... So, so I actually got my whole team involved. And I don't know if that was a good thing or bad, bad thing. So, so I, I, you know, like we would do big team meetings to like review where we are on the product status, bugs, launch readiness, all those kind of things. And uh, someone always asked like a personal question. I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm going on this date with this girl I knew from college that I think is smarter than me. I think she's awesome, and I'm kind of nervous about it. And like they were kind of all trying to like get me psyched up and prepared to go on this this date. And then. Uh, I probably shouldn't have done that. That's probably a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, it's cool because like now like we're all friends. Like my wife and I are friends with all of the other folks at Nest because they were there on the whole journey with us. Uh, uh, so I guess maybe it was a good thing. Maybe I'll do, maybe I'll do that again. Actually, but, but actually no, I won't do that again because my wife. That's a, that's a long term thing. I, you, know, you don't get. You, 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 you don't, you, don't, you don't really do that again. That's a one-time thing. Yeah. This, like, this real-time processing is amazing. Um, so, <laughs> so you and Swati launched Insight in 2017. There's three entities, Insight Ventures to back world-changing startups, Insight Labs, a private foundation, and Insight Politics to back political initiatives and candidates. Give us just a minute on what you're doing now and why. So 
we believe very strongly that if you give great mission-oriented founders and entrepreneurs the kind of the capital, the catalytics, the advice, like they will go work wonders and they'll accomplish that change in the world. And I think, especially coming from Silicon Valley, there's a lot of focus on like you know startups. Startups are the right vehicle to accomplish change, but they're not the only ones. And uh, I think, especially you know, Swathi has been this influence on me from her background working in nonprofits and working in development. That there are lots of mechanisms to accomplish change, and like it's our job to sort out the kind of the legal structures. But like we want all great entrepreneurs who are kind of on epic missions to come to come find us to get help. Awesome. Uh, we are going to close with our, our high voltage round. Quick questions, quick answers. If you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? Well, I played dog. Uh, so, so my dog Bingley is an Airedale, and he's a he's a really good dude. He's got a lot of energy. He's always happy to see me. Just like his life is so good, and I, I admire like one his naivete, but like also like his spunk. <laughs> if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Uh, I would do the same thing. Like, I, I think. Uh, I have no regrets in my life and I'm just, I'm so happy to have gone through that journey and I would, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Ooh, probably my mother. Uh, uh, someone who, one, like, always was there to push me, but at the same time was there as a sounding board when I was falling short. Uh, couldn't done without her for sure. When have you failed? Uh, every day. <laughs> like, literally every day. Uh, and I, I come from a place like I see lots of new things every day, new technologies, new companies, you know, new initiatives, new people running for office. And I realize how many great, smart, mission-oriented people are in the world and like how inadequate I am. I got massive imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's one of the things that gets me out of bed to keep doing what I do. Hmm. What's the best investment you've ever made? Ooh. So I think financial investment uh, is a company called Nav. Uh, they make uh, credit softwares for small businesses. So like, as a small business, you may not have a credit history, and they created some really cool online tools like a la Credit Karma for, for a small business. And uh, we did seed investing in a Series A, and we followed in the B and the C, and I, I think that's one of our strongest financial investments. Not a clean tech investment, uh, but uh, quite good, and actually good for humanity too. Like small businesses need help. Totally. What's the hardest thing you've dealt with? Ooh. Hardest thing is probably the divorce of my parents when I was 13. Uh, it was one of the things that made me grow up really quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about like going through college, doing undergrad and grad in four years. Like I was forced to grow up really fast and help take care of my brothers. And maybe that was a good, you know, it was very hard at the time, but maybe it was really good in hindsight and that, you know, I developed a lot of leadership skills that way. Mm -hmm. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Mm. That people change. So, uh, 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 so, so, uh, I, I, wait, yeah. so you're saying people don't change? People don't change. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you are who you are. Like, like you could, you could learn, like you could learn new skills, uh, but it's really hard to change like what gets you out of bed and what drives you. Well said. Who's had the biggest influence on your life and why? I think from an outside perspective, uh, Al Gore, actually, someone I've always admired. Uh, and talk about like someone who's gone through like remarkable luck, success, privilege, uh, but also failure uh, and how he's bounced back from failure. Like, you know, imagine having election defeat handed to you by one vote in a Supreme Court. 
and uh, then going on to build an incredibly successful uh, career as an investor and as an advocate and elevating the issue of climate change on the world stage. Like, in- incredible story of kind of rebound and success. For sure. When are you your best self? Every day. <laughs> All, always. Just you got to show up and do it. I love that answer. What's your worst trait? It's probably the same, actually. Uh, 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 I, I have one speed, and uh, I, I wish I wish I had like 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 you have a gas pedal, like you push it all the way down, or kind of let up a little bit. Like I have all the way down or off. What's your greatest career embarrassment? Career embarrassment? Oh man, there's a lot of them. Uh, so uh, the team at Nest, uh, th- we did a lot of like team photos, like very candid, and like Shige Hanjo I mentioned earlier head of hardware and operations, took a lot of candid photos. And I think there's, I think there's photos of me in bunny suits in China in very awkward poses that, you know, like I'd rather not ever get on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> we can all go search for those after this. <laughs> um, what was your single greatest career achievement? Hmm. It probably hasn't come yet, honestly. Uh, uh, I think back of like, you know, starting the smart home industry, like revitalizing clean tech, but uh, I think the best is still to come. And I think about the impact we can have with Insight and the ability to help others accomplish their dreams. I think you know, the, the best is still to come through them. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Uh, 400 ppm needs to be like 360, 370 really soon. So uh, we got a lot of CO2 we got to stop emitting and we got to pull some out. Mm. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? I think thinking about like, you know, these kids growing up and seeing the world like, you know, through social media and the daunting problem of climate change, like the, the spectacle of U.S. politics, uh, that they could go and they could go accomplish their dreams, that they actually could go and and work at great places and build great things and have an impact. I think I'd love those, those kids to hear this mm-hmm. and that they could go do it too. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? They spend too much money. <laughs> <laughs> Success is? In the eye of the beholder. You are the beholder. So to you, success is? Uh success never really comes like you know I, I think you know, too often like people you know celebrate success I'm I'm from the school of like maybe it's like the Japanese samurai school of of, of learning where like uh, you know you've never never quite the master if I could have done one thing differently I would have I mean I should have quit school and started Apple a year earlier <laughs> <laughs> I missed a hell of a year. I, I, and, and like, yes, I, it probably wouldn't have mattered in the long term, but I, I missed a really fun year that year. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be? Uh, we got minus 50 ppm. Let's do it. I'm most proud of? Still making it. Uh, I mean, a, a, a lot of adversity the last decade and a half and uh, stuck through it. Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is? Perseverance. Uh, never give up. And like, you know, again, like, I, I feel like I had like the most lucky path through everything. Like, I'm not sure the Nest path is reproducible. Uh, but 
like no two paths are the same, but you just got to keep persevering through adversity. Like I think resilience is probably the biggest trait you can have when starting a company. Mm, agreed. With that, please give a massive round of applause for Matt Rogers. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here and join us for news stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.